1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Cable. Our guest today is Kyle T. Mays, here to talk about his new book, An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States, a first-of-its-kind intersectional history of the Black and Native American struggle for freedom in America. Beginning with pre-revolutionary America and moving into the movement for Black Lives and Contemporary Indigenous Activism, Mays, an Afro-Indigenous historian, argues that the foundations of the US are rooted in anti-Blackness and settler colonialism, and that these parallel oppressions continue into the present. He explores how Black and Indigenous peoples have always resisted and struggled for freedom, sometimes together and sometimes apart. Whether to end African enslavement and Indigenous removal or eradicate capitalism and colonialism, Mays shows how black and indigenous peoples calls for justice have consistently sought to uproot white supremacy. Using a wide array of key texts and pop culture touchstones, Mays also covers the civil rights movement and freedom movements of the 1960s and 1970s and explores current debates around the use of Native American imagery and the appropriation of black culture. Mays is assistant professor of African-American studies American Indian Studies and History at UCLA. And he's also the author of the 2018 book, Hip Hop Beats and Indigenous Rhymes, Modernity and Hip Hop in Indigenous North America. Kyle T. Mays, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies.
1: Thank you, John, for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Sure. So before we discuss
0: your new book, can you tell us a little bit about your background and the work you've put out in the past?
1: Sure thing. So, um, I'm African-American Saginaw Chippewa. Um, I did my PhD at the university of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, uh, under, uh, the great Frederick E. Hoxie and Robert Warrior there. Um, and, uh, I'm from, I'm from Michigan. So grew up in the Midwest, went to school in the Midwest and I'm currently an assistant professor, as you said, at UCLA. Um, and I'm also, you know, I, I, consider myself an interdisciplinary historian. So I do work on contemporary popular culture, but it's mostly now work is in general is guided by um, two questions. What is the relationship between uh, black people, people of African descent and indigenous peoples in the US but also brought in the throughout the Americas? And what kind of world do we want to live? And what role does history play in building a world towards the aftermath of separate colonialism and white supremacy? Hmm. And
0: what about the, uh, the previous work that you've put out in the past, uh, your 2018 book?
1: Yeah, so uh, Hip Hop Beast Indigenous Rhymes was really an excuse for me to talk about the relationship between blackness and indigeneity. Mm -hmm. Often, um, it's just like the Afro-Indigenous history book, which we'll get into, but often it's a focus on the 19th century, the relationship between dispossession and enslavement, a focus on the five tribes. And I wanted to look at contemporary forms of popular culture and how Black and Indigenous peoples uh, create struggles, but especially through through their shared struggles, um, produce identity And how indigenous hip-hop is a form of resistance against uh, contemporary manifestations of colonialism.
0: So you write that you want your new book to recover histories, reorient our understanding of historical events and peoples, and projects what a present and future idea of black and indigenous solidarity might look like. So can you talk
1: a little bit about
0: the hole in the literature that you hope that this book fills?
1: Yeah, so... um, it's both the scholarship and uh, how we sort of view particular historical figures as it relates to people of African descent. So one of the major claims that I uh, make in the book is that what happens when we understand that people of African descent, those first waves of uh, Africans who were kidnapped and forced to come to the Americas, what if we consider those... Indigenous peoples, after all, they have their own land base, their own languages, their own customs, tribes, etc. Right, and because of the history, how we understand and write about um, the history of slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, they're automatically marked with the uh, sort of mark of, of blackness of being enslaved. Right, and we erase their own indigenous roots. So that's on the one hand. Uh, But as far as a scholarship, you know, there are fantastic historians I respect. Uh, Taya Miles, of course. Uh, Elena Roberts, more recently in her book, I've Been Here All the While. And I wanted to tell a story that wasn't just about the five tribes because that dominates the scholarship uh, and what we would call Afro-Indigenous history. And so I think this particular book is an approach to thinking about the structures of dispossession and enslavement as simultaneous processes and fundamental to uh, understanding uh, early uh, the approach of American democracy within in a a better understanding of U.S. history by connecting these two uh, historical processes of enslavement and dispossession.
0: And you're right that you've gotten some pushback on your research agenda in the past.
1: Yeah, um, most of the pushback uh, is kind of early on in my graduate experience. There was a, um, not from my advisor or anything, but there was a particular uh, black studies professor. When I approached him and said, you know, during recruitment, oh, I want to study the relationship between African-Americans and Native Americans during the uh, Black and Red Power era, particularly ideologies and intersection between the American Indian Movement and the Black Panther Party, because I had seen similarities and had done a little bit of research as an undergraduate. And he remarked, well, there there wasn't a relationship between the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement. And I knew that was false (laughs) because um, it's something that was covered in the Black Panther newspaper. So uh, ever since then, I wanted to tell this story about these, uh, how we treat these sort of histories very differently. You also write about having first
0: encountered some of the sort of foundational texts of American history and politics and how those texts first sat with you. So how do those key texts and their authors help us better flesh out the connections between black and indigenous Americans and between black and indigenous histories?
1: So, um, one, a, a particular text I had to read uh, in my first semester at James Madison College at Michigan State University. Uh, freshmen are required to attend the MC 201 seminar, uh, which is an introductory course. You attend a large lecture, and then you have your particular sections with your professor. And there are two foundational uh, texts that everyone reads, and that's Democracy in America by Alexei de Tocqueville and the Federalist Papers, which have uh, various authors, Alligator Hamilton, among others. And I had no idea what was going on in those texts back in the day. <laughs> but um, what I now appreciate, appreciate even though we didn't read the chapter that Tocqueville has on the three races and only focused really on factionalism, but they're sort of ethnographic texts, at least historically and understanding how Uh, U.S. democracy was constructed, but it was very much so constructed at the detriment of enslaved Africans uh, and limiting their prospects for freedom and citizenship and certainly the dispossession of indigenous people. So when I read Tocqueville, and we were not assigned this particular chapter, and Tocqueville sort of concludes that I don't see how blacks, whites, and native peoples – could exist on the same continent under the umbrella of indigenous democracy. And uh, not to let, you know, French colonialism off the hook, but in his analysis of white Americans, he said they would never see any of these people as equal. And they were hell bent on taking land and making sure that black people did not integrate into American society or democracy. Uh, And so that's a fascinating approach to understanding a foundational document from an outsider but it is foundational to the understanding and early development of u.s democracy mm.
0: so in your next chapter you write that the 19th century was a tumultuous time for many black and native peoples uh, what with slavery and emancipation on one hand and the end of treaty making and the onset of allotment on the other so what did Afro-Indigenous connections look like during this time, the long 19th century, and who do you use to sort of flesh those connections out?
1: Yeah, so in the long 19th century, um, it's the early years of, of U.S. democracy. And so one of the challenges in writing, um, and this is for listeners who, who may not have written a book or do comparative work, one of the challenges in doing that and in trying to not explicitly focus on the five tribes and those connections are trying to find other ways to explore, uh, in this case, black and indigenous histories. Uh, so I took this particular approach of finding people, um, who are living perhaps their lives are not intersecting like Jane Johnson Schoolcraft a European and Anishinaabe, uh, woman who became a poet. And of course the wife of, um uh, Henry School of Craft. And so uh, telling these a variety of different characters and stories and how they're trying to challenge and reshape ideas of U.S. democracy. And then uh, in that chapter, I focus on someone like Frederick Douglass, who we all consider uh, in many respects a great um, American hero, uh, a person who is adamant and challenging at the heart of uh, the institution of slavery, but he also, even though he defended in a a sort of, um, he defended something against the Chinese Exclusion Act, he also props a black American of the epitome of citizens and who are worthy of citizenship at the detriment of uh, perpetuating this trope of indigenous um, savagery. And so it's a very interesting thing of how black people on the one hand are fighting for emancipation fighting for citizenship but at the same time often using the notion of indigenous peoples as savages or unworthy of the same sorts of citizenship and rights uh, to prop up their own sort of freedom and it's a trope that exists from the 19th century well into the uh, 20th century. And you can see elements of that sometimes uh, today.
0: So even during the so- so-called uh, Nadir period of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, you write that Black and indigenous peoples were prolific organizers. They responded to mm-hmm. oppression in unique ways. So what were some examples that you point to here?
1: One of the uh, best examples that I point to in the book it is the Universal Racist Congress held in London over three days in July of 1911, um, and it was a moment when um, Native peoples, are populations, are on the decline, uh, further, further um, onto forced onto reservation, and sort of this rhetoric and discourse of uh, Indigenous peoples being in the past or disappearing. At this, and during a moment of there's an increase in Jim Crow racism, and uh, all sorts of violence and white terrorism committed against black people, including lynching. And both of these groups are trying to find a way to exist in a very white supremacist world. And so, W. B. Du Bois, the great writer, scholar, um, an African American intellectual and Charles Eastman, a Dakota medical doctor who became a great writer, a very prolific writer, um, and a founding member of the Society of American Indians founded uh, in 1911. They go to London to appeal um, to people from around the world about the plight of black and indigenous peoples. And they're on the same panel. Um, and they attempt to share both of their plates. And for me, it's a particular moment of understanding black and indig- indigenous struggles and the possibilities that would come much later in more uh, explicit forms of solidarity to challenge um, white supremacy and settler colonialism within the global arena. And I think it's a watershed moment of uh, understanding that.
0: You also write, and, and we should mention this is, um, as you sort of alluded to, this is uh In the middle of the the dawes act allotment period as the Mm -hmm. native american land base is being chipped away at um and so american indians desire for a a land base and an intact you know surviving land base uh sort of coincides with with marcus garvey and the unia's desire for for somewhere to call home
1: um you say Mm -hmm. say a little bit more about that yeah so the um The Garvey discussion has always fascinated me as a as a historian, but also just um, someone committed to uh, forms of using history to create forms of justice today. And many black folks understand Garvey and his reference um, in a variety of circles as someone uh, we should look forward to and respect. And I don't disagree with that. However, Uh, When someone claims to be the provincial president of Africa or um, uh, basically agreeing with white supremacists in the KKK and meeting with them is something that we should challenge uh, historically. You know, you can't, of course, change the past, but it's something we should more critically engage with and also challenge his rhetoric of. Although he's trying to create a home space, it was in many regards a settler colonial ideology that he was implementing to go. And uh, there's a lot of this Victorian Christian rhetoric of colonizing and mission uh, and co- engaging in missionary work for the savage Africans. Uh, and many of his rhetoric, even as he was trying to create a home space for uh, people of African descent throughout the world. So,
0: moving ahead a bit, in discussing the post-World War II period, you write that to deconstruct Malcolm X's words within the context of indigeneity is essential to understanding Black-Indigenous relations. So, how so?
1: Yeah, so, um, uh, Malcolm X is a personal uh, hero of mine. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X every summer uh, since I was 16. I read it every summer since I was 16 and um, every time I read it, I find something else. So I think it was about the summer of 2014 or 15. I was rereading it, and I f- had noticed that he had some um, ways of talking about Native peoples, and I started seeing this discourse and not only Malcolm X, but people like Jake Baldwin and others where they use a history of indigenous dispossession and genocide to construct a sort of black uh, future freedom. In other words, to say uh, that if black people don't get their act together, uh, ask for rights, human rights, citizenship, then they will simply end up like the Indians. And this discourse to me is dangerous because it perpetuates the notion of indigenous erasure and that native peoples no longer have a particular uh, freedom within the within the United States, or even beyond the United States. Uh, and there's many instances when uh, Malcolm X saw this in the autobiography, or other speeches, and as I mentioned, James Baldwin as well.
0: And a place where some people might have noticed uh, what you're talking about now. Um recently in in Raul Peck's uh, 2016 film about James Baldwin. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you found useful in that film versus what you found a little bit problematic?
1: Yeah, so, um, and I will say in Exterminate All the Brutes, uh, Raul Peck, he does a great job. He uh, worked with historian Roxanne Dermartise and and sort of rectified some of that within... um, uh, in indigenous people's history in the United States and his documentary exterminate all the brutes that just aired uh, last year. So he rectified that, but in this particular one, he um, he has all these images of old war films of uh, sort of the cowboy Indian genre where native peoples are engaging in uh, some sort of sad- savagery and John Wayne is coming as an epitome of Western expansion and the American dream. This sort of white male is coming to then kill off the Indians. Um, and he uses these images, which as a filmmaker, is fascinating that he chose because it perpetuates this notion of indigenous genocide while coupling it with the words of Baldwin when he's saying that if black people do not... Uh, organize and get their action, they'll end up just like the Indians. And again, this perpetuates the idea that Native people have little agency, generally died off, and that there's no future for Native peoples. And I I think it's a rhetoric and a discourse that we do have to challenge as uh, historians, as a moral responsibility. So by the
0: late... 1960s and the 1970s, certainly tangible connections had emerged between advocates of black power and advocates of red power. This part was particularly interesting to me. Um, What were some of those connections, those tangible connections, and and why did they emerge when they did, do you think?
1: Well, I think there had been earlier attempts to um, make certain sorts of connections. Uh, As I mentioned, the one in London. But they weren't always aligned around the same particular goals. See, because um, even someone, uh, Fine Deloria Jr., the great Standing Rock intellectual, um, said that black people are fighting for civil rights and native peoples are fighting for treaty rights or simply to be left alone. Right? And what black and red power activists, like the founders of the American Indian movement, including Clyde Belcourt, uh, And folks like Stokely Carmichael, who changed his name to Kwame Ture. What they understood was the U.S. was a white supremacist state, a settler colonial state. And how do we collaborate in order to create change for all of us? Right. Um, And so Deloria says in the Trail uh, Trail of Broken Treaties that Native peoples were not looking to share land with any minorities, even as they utilized their rights. Uh, But that wasn't true for many of the Red Power advocates. And so Stokely Carmichael and Clyde Belcour often collaborated uh, on particular issues uh, and culminating. And I think it's important to highlight the work of Stokely Carmichael because in 1974, uh, he gave a speech called The Red and the Black in St. Paul, Minnesota. And in this speech, he makes a particular point that I have not seen any uh, African American, any black person during that particular period state. And that was that this is indigenous land. And his role as a person committed to justice and freedom in solidarity with Native peoples was to make sure that you center indigenous land in all forms of activism. And I think it's a powerful an important moment of solidarity. And I hope that um, that continues and people take that particular example.
0: So in the final chapters, you, you touch on some contemporary issues such as uh, cultural appropriation and language. So how does an Afro indigenous framework like the one you advance here in the book, show us new ways to think about those issues?
1: Well, Around something like cultural appropriation, I think it's, it's important to differentiate between, uh, what's appropriation and the power dynamics and turning a particular culture into uh, a commodity, something to be profited off of versus I think understanding it as a form of solidarity. So, um, you know, when I look at indigenous hip hop artists, uh, many of them, if you talk with them based on some of my previous research, uh, they know black people, they hang around black people, they're not trying to exploit a culture, uh, but they're utilizing it to construct their own sense of self and identity. And I think in a very positive way, right? It's not always for them about private, it's something that they connected to, and it's a part of of youth culture. And I know sometimes folks don't want to hear that, but hip hop culture, it might be a cult, a black cultural aesthetic, a form of expressive culture, but it is a form of youth culture. or We might say millennial culture, right? It's certainly a form of millennial culture, Um, meaning it's pervasive and it's been adapted by people all around the world to express themselves. Now they might adopt, forms of black culture, such as black language, which I think anyone who raps adopts elements of black language and culture, but it becomes their own and they create their own styles and approaches. Uh, so for me, that's more appreciation and simple forms of appropriation. Though I will admit, um, you, although the Washington football team, billionaires forced them to change their name, although native peoples have been active in this for decades. It was billionaires who forced them to do so. And I'll never forget a particular image of uh, during the initial moments of Black Lives Matter and uh, expressions within the professional ranks such as the NFL. There was a particular image of many black men on the Washington football team while their name uh, still had the R word, and they had a black power fist, but they're adorned with the very racist mascot and name. I mean, I was like, you can't make this up. <laughs> uh, and so, for me, it was like a and and even the more recent issues of in racism, and you watch the Kansas City team, and they still have the war chance, the tomahawk chance, uh, and it's it's like a joke. Like you, you couldn't make this up even though uh, they have a black quarterback and all these forms of things are, I wish there was more self-awareness, uh, even from uh, black people sometimes about how easily uh, you can perpetuate indigenous erasure and a form of racism unique to indigenous peoples. So so this is a really f- future-oriented, you know, um,
0: Uh, I guess, forward oriented book, Um, you have certain ideas about, about um, black indigenous solidarity and what that should look like in the future. Can you, can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. I, you know, it was, I had a whole nother ending to the book um, (laughs) uh, before I put that in there. So the initial ending was going to be, just about my personal experiences in a variety of contexts about being an Afro-Indigenous person. Um, and I think that still would have had value, but I did feel just some kind of thing to put some ideas out there for people to think about things that I've been thinking about as well. Uh, if we're going to move towards this sort of uh, building towards this future in the aftermath of settler colonialism and white supremacy, oftentimes this, it seems idealistic for people instead of, you know, you can fight for certain things for justice, but you also have to do the hard work of thinking through and building at the same time. And so, you know, I put several things down. Um, and one of them was uh, creating space or the concept of land, right? Um, if, if, if it black people are not settlers and I'm not saying black people, especially the descendants of enslaved Africans cannot perpetuate or engage in settler colonial processes. Certainly they have, i.e. the Buffalo soldiers or, um, as Elena Roberts in her book points to, uh, how you had African Americans relying on the state in order to, uh, exploit and get land through the land allotments in Indian territory, um, in the late 19th, early 20th century. But if they do not come here to settle and, uh, say native people's land was returned tomorrow, what do we do about that? And my whole idea is how can we create and rely on indigenous nations or whatever their protocols are for incorporating, um, outsiders into their nations like what are those protocols and how can we implement those right? and i mean not even just african americans but also those forced to come to the u.s uh because of the united states is neoliberal policies so uh indigenous folks forced to come from mexico el salvador or other uh parts of the americas right how do we deal with migration refugee status uh and those sorts of things so that's that's one idea and the second thing I think it's important is our contemporary discussion around reparations today I it, it's a I'm not opposed to reparations and by that I mean meeting people's everyday needs and ending the exploitation um, and the underpayment of people for their labor but a predatory lending and a host of other things but uh, in the long term Right? Do we really want reparations um, under a capos regime? Right? Do we? How much are our uh, African ancestors' blood, formerly enslaved peoples, those who died under captivity? How much are their bones uh, worth? Right? And then, how can we talk about reparations? Uh, without also talking about returning land to indigenous peoples. I mean, I think that's the particular moral question that has not really been answered. I mean, in the book, uh, I'm going back a little bit, but I talked a little bit about the Republic of New Africa, who was formed in Detroit in 1968. Uh, And remember, they wanted the five southern uh, nations and what's often ignored in that history is that they very much understood Southern native history and the issue of, uh, of the five tribes and their removal from those areas. Right. And so again, for them, these people were all removed and because of uh, enslaved people's exploited labor, they deserve that land. But again, I think there's a, Historical and moral question of if you get that land, are you now acting as a settler and perpetuating um, U.S. empire in a particular way, even if you're claiming to create your own nation? And I think that's a question um, that we have to interrogate further with groups like the Republic of New Africa or um, folks who wanted to claim land with black folks in particular who wanted to claim land in the U.S.
0: That's a fascinating question and and a really Fascinating book. Um, so, b- before we let you go today, Kyle Mays, uh, what's next for you?
1: I have a few a few things uh, next. So, I have a forthcoming book called "City of Dispossessions: Indigenous Peoples, African Americans, and the Creation of Modern Detroit," uh, coming out in May of 2022 with the University of Pennsylvania Press, and uh, it's really my dissertation work, but it explores how. Uh, the, within, scholar, within urban history, urban studies scholarship, Afro-Indigenous studies, um, how we can talk about the concept of dispossession uh, as, it re, as it impacts both uh, Black and Native peoples and looking at the concepts of Blackness, indigeneity and belonging uh, within a particular urban space. I think often we talk about these things very separately, um, hardly any discussion within urban studies scholarship, it's mostly right now uh, very important work, but it's at the level of uh, conceptualizing in theory, that is how does settler colonialism and racial capitalism intersect in urban areas. But uh, there's been hardly any work uh, that especially focuses on history, exploring uh, these concepts uh, through the lens of dispossession in a particular context, and Detroit's a fascinating place to study those things, right? So there's a lot of discussions of uh, dispossession today, um, especially and even from the 20th century onward. But we ignore the longer history of dispossession, how that has played a role within the city of Detroit, beginning with the dispossession of indigenous peoples and how uh, forms of indigeneity, whether that's a Panya car brand have been utilized to construct Detroit uh, discursively at least as a place of modernity and possibility. And the rhetoric used today to discuss Detroit as a place of possibility, uh, even most recently, uh, I think while Detroit's population has declined according to the 2020 census, and I think the black population declined by nearly 16%, the white population has increased from 2010 to 2020 by nearly 10%. Uh, so you, And they use this rhetoric of Detroit 2.0, Detroit possibility. It's very reminiscent of this frontier discourse. So I use a, Detroit as a case study to talk about, um, at least historically and a little bit into the present, um, about how dispossession impacts Black and Native peoples um, and how white people can easily perpetuate those notions as well.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating. I uh, hope you'll come back on the program and discuss it when it's, uh, when it's out. Yeah. Yeah, let um, me know. yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on the program today, Dr. Mays. Uh, it's been a pleasure.
1: All right. appreciate you, John. Thank you. Thank you so much.